Welcome to the Equality Conversation podcast with me, Joy Burnford. This show explores what we can all do to be an ally and champion gender equality at work. Achieving gender balance in the workplace isn't about fixing the women. It's about changing the system to ensure that everyone can reach their full potential. So if you're looking for insights, guidance or advice on how to improve gender equality in your organisation, grab a cuppa, go for a walk or escape for a while and join us for today's conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Encompass Equality. We're the leading provider of practical solutions to advancing gender equality in the workplace and partner with organisations to support the attraction, retention and progression of women. We do this through research and consulting, leadership development programmes, talks and workshops and one-to-one and group coaching. To find out more and to download free tools and frameworks from the number one best-selling book, Don't Fix Women, visit EncompassEquality.com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Phil Burgess and Felix Koch as my guests. Phil and Felix were previously Joint Managing Directors at C-Space, where they were instrumental in driving forward inclusion and gender diversity. Phil then went on to become Chief People Officer and Felix, CEO of C-Space's EMEA and APAC regions. They've now founded Within, a company which delivers programs that build connected workplace cultures. And they join me today to talk about improving inclusion and mental health at work. So hello, Phil and Felix. Welcome to the Equality Conversation. Hello. Good morning. I wondered, Phil, if you could tell me a little bit about your careers in a nutshell. Yeah, so Felix and I, we both started our careers in similar fashion in, in the world of consulting and then came together about 12 years ago when Felix was working for a co-creation consultancy, a small company of about 35 people called Promise. And he and the MD at the time recruited me to be another director in the team building their building their business. And soon after the business was acquired, so we went from 35 to about 350 people overnight. We were acquired by a holding company and about a year later, Felix and I were promoted into the position of joint managing directors of our London office. So that was our first foray into into leadership in a a co-leadership position. Uh, We spent about three and a half years turning around the culture of that office, which was, uh, yeah, a a bit of a tumultuous time, but a big, a very rewarding time for us both where we learned a lot. And then we spent the last four years in, in different positions. I was chief people officer for four years over in the States, and Felix led our EMEA and APAC region over here before starting our new business together. And Felix, maybe you could tell me a little bit about that experience at C-Space when you were joint MDs. I'm really interested in this because it's effectively a senior job show, which, as you know, I talk a lot about in my book about how, from an equality perspective, it's fantastic. But, you know, I'd love to know, you know, did it work well? You know, were there any challenges? And what did other people, you know, think about that? What were the perceptions of others? Yeah, great questions. I guess going into this, none of us were really gunning for the position. So we were running our teams. And then one day our CEO came to us and said, I, you know, I want to give you both the joint MD role. And and we didn't, we hadn't expected that. We hadn't wanted to be that person because we didn't see ourselves as leaders as such. I, I never thought I could lead a business like that. So I think that was the interesting thing that someone saw something in us, an unorthodox choice, which really worked out in the end. So we didn't know it would work out in the beginning, but it really, it really was successful. And I think 
the key success factors of this working out, I would say, is that we, Phil and I, have very similar values when it comes to work ethic or what good quality work looks like or how to run a people-centric business. We, we discovered we have very similar values and we are very different people otherwise. So from a skill set point of view, or even from, if you look at Myers-Briggs, INTJ, Phyllis, ENFP, so we're completely opposite types to be around. And we felt we could really yeah, cover more bases and cover more people and, and cater for more situations in the business by working well together. So I think Similar values, very different skills, and then a, a mutual respect for each other. I think those things were really key for making it work, I think. So were there any particular challenges that you kind of, as that, I mean, I think it's fantastic you say about the joint values, because I find all the job share people, you know, partners that I talk to, that always comes across that the values have to be aligned. And if you have that aligned, that's really, really, you know, it's crucial. And I'd just love to know, uh, you know, rather than talking about the positives, you know, what were some of the challenges that you faced along the way? I think as in, in every leadership position that where you have more than one person, you need to be really aligned very well. So I think very early we realized we have to speak with one voice. We have to align ourselves very often on communications. We shouldn't have a situation where someone comes to me with a question. I say yes. And Phil has already said no beforehand, for example. So we just need to be very clear on what are the decisions, what are the policies and, and how are we going to communicate them? So that's, I think, a really important thing that we didn't get right um, all the time. And I think the other thing that wasn't always clear to people was like, so I've got this issue. Who do I go to with this stuff? Is it a Phil topic or is it a Felix topic? So I think maybe half a year in, we, we developed a bit of a Venn diagram where we said, okay, Phil and Felix are responsible jointly for these topics, finances and people. And then Phil is responsible for marketing your business and um, some of the HR stuff. And Felix is responsible for all the client stuff. And that then was an important signpost to tell people who's responsible and accountable for what. So that's, we should have done that from the beginning, really. It's all a learning curve, isn't it? And I think it's so interesting you saying as well, you didn't think of yourselves as leaders. I think it's, it's incredible that a lot of people feel like that, don't they? They think, I'm not a leader. But then you have that response, you know, other people see that in you. So, you know, it's fantastic. So, Phil, I, I know you've, you both have families and you've both taken parental leave. And you know I'm really passionate about encouraging more, you know, men to take more parental leave as well. And I just wondered, you know, if you could share how you found that and how you shared, you know, the workload and how we can encourage more men to take parental leave. Yeah, and perhaps I can start and then Felix can pick up the baton. I mean, we, we both became dads as we took on that role as a managing director just before. So we were, we were juggling that position of being at work and at home. And it was really important to us that, that we led by example for the organization in taking parental leave. I took three, four weeks, I believe. Um, but Felix actually took a much longer period, didn't you, Felix? And, and that was really important to you. Yeah. I think it was really important. I think if I think about what made it possible for me to do that was, I think I had a role model in my brother who was 10 years older than, than I was, who had done it already in Germany. And of course, the provision in Germany is a bit better as well, but I, I had seen it in real life, how it works. So that was in inspirational to me. And then the other fact I think was my wife not feeling threatened by a husband who can do all of it as well. So I had a nine month old with my firstborn looking after her for four months, 24 seven. And she, she went back to work full time and she loved it. And she could be like, okay, you, you're a mom now. Great. And I don't feel threatened by you also being able to be a mom. And that's, I think very often, I think women don't always find it easy to share the identity with men. So that was, that was really important. And I think the, the, the final thing I want to say is that, you know, I was, especially when I took uh, parental leave two and three, I, I was already in a, in a certain position of power. So I had one, the privilege to earn enough to to not earn in in the in the month that I was taking off, so that's a privilege that of course not everyone has. 
And I was also valued enough by the business for them to not shoot me down. It was the law, but I think they could have also said, I don't think it's a great idea, Felix, to do it. And, and of course, Phil was also having my back. So part of that was we were in a co-leadership position. I was on, on parental leave and Phil did all of it, the whole job. And I came back and I was like, that's, that's amazing. Thanks, Phil, for, for keeping, keeping my seat alive in a way. And I think, Felix, we've spoken before as well about how we're still such a long way from this being normal. And from you know societal point of view, and I, th- I know you've spoken before about how it's really hard to encourage others to you know to sort of role model this. And I know you've done such an amazing job at you know role modeling within your organisation. I don't know whether you wanted to say anything about that and how you know how, how do you think it's moved a bit? Has it is it getting better? Do you think and is there more acceptance? I don't have the data on this, but it feels it's very very slow moving. I think what we would need to see for more changes is more men to take leave, more senior men to take leave, and for more senior men to take it and talk about it. That's why also I've put it on LinkedIn as a dedicated time on my, in my career. I've taken that time and to create some sort of, you know, some sense of pride and all the stuff you can learn doing it. So it's, it's good for society to do that. So more role models. And of course, financially, I think the government could do more to, you know, or business could more to provide more financial backup because I think that's the number one reason people quote why they're not doing it. And Phil, coming back to sort of your time at C-Space, you also helped to drive forward inclusion at C-Space and managed to change, I think you told me you changed the gender split on the leadership team. I'd love to know more about kind of how you did that, um, what actions did you take and you know, what had the most impact, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think in the first year at C-Space, we had a, a slightly different idea of inclusion to the one that we do now. We were a co-creation agency, so it was sort of in our blood to include other people in decision-making. So I think we did a lot of really positive stuff. We, we co-created our values with, with the team. We were very open about sharing our feedback with people, um, our development areas. So our, our definition of inclusion was very involving others in decision-making. And then I think there were two critical conversations with me that, that helped me realize that really diversity and inclusion needed to be much more activist and much more urgent and it, it was actually it was much harder than I think what we what we first started out as one was we had a, a leadership team meeting um, there were about 14 of us in the room and we were filing out we had a glass panel at the time there were two women in the group one of whom was on vacation that day and the rest of us were men and as we fired out of the room our HR manager walked past and she sort of raised her eyebrows at me and was like enjoy your man meeting today and that was all she said. And then she went and made uh, herself a coffee. And I think it really landed with me and Felix that we were in a position of power and we hadn't really changed one of the fundamental things. And, and we had the power and privilege to change the makeup of that leadership team that we'd inherited. So within a couple of weeks, we looked at who we needed on the team and, and why people were there. And a lot of the people that were there were practitioners who'd just gotten there because they had been at the company a long time and were in senior positions. And we had fantastic women leading teams who were influential to our agency, who were not on the team. So we had some difficult conversations. We asked three men to step out of the team. They had other roles in the agency. We invited three women into the team. So that instantly changed the the demographics. And that was an important symbolic step, I think, for us and the agency. And then I had another conversation trying to better understand the lived experiences of people in our organization, because Felix and I were increasingly conscious of the fact that we're two straight white guys leading an organization. That's not the world we live in. An Indian senior consultant gave me some advice, one that I couldn't expect her to educate me about her lived experience or other marginalized groups in our agency. And she she suggested I read a book called White Like Me by Tim Wise, 
which I think helped me start to understand my position of privilege, my whiteness, the power I have to change things. And I think those were those were two, I think, quite courageous conversations where people spoke up, spoke out, and we listened. And whilst we didn't then get everything right, I think it really did. They were catalysts for, for change in our organisation. That's brilliant. And I think, you know, that bravery, you say, you know, having those conversations, I don't know if you remember in my book, I talk about more bravery and less bravado, because I think a lot of the time in these kind of leadership teams have, that could be predominantly met, you know, male, you have to be really brave to have those kind of conversations and make that bold change. And also the fact that you listened, again, that's something I'm always talking about, you know, just, just listen and ask really good questions. Because often people say to me, I don't know what to do. How do we do this? And I say, well, just listen, go out and talk to people and see, see what they're, you know, what they're saying to you. Felix, I know both of you are recognized as agents of change. And we've talked about, you know, highlighting other role models and, and importance of role modeling behavior. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's really important for us to be able to, you know, for, for example, I, at the time when I had smaller kids, I did some of the nursery runs. I put in my diary that, that I'll be leaving the office early. And that was some degree of role modeling to say, you know, I can do this. You might be able to do that too. And still people said, well, you're the boss, you're white, you're a guy. Of course you can do that. I will never be able to do that. So I think role modeling can, can help and can create a pathway, but still it will not um, create immediate change. I think it's really important to think about what other, what other role models can we find that are closer to the groups that are being excluded and, and not being part of the conversation and not just us who, you know, if I go on LinkedIn and talk about this, people might say like, yeah, of course, of course you should take paternity leave. There's nothing to be proud of. This is ridiculous. Why, why do we still celebrate guys taking pet leave? That's madness. So, so there's a limit to that, but um, it's still a, a very powerful. Yeah. And I think it's also um, thinking about, I talk a lot about allyship and I think it's often people talk about male allies. And I think it's also really important that we have female allies and actually how we can be allies to each other. So it's not just about you know men being allies to women, it's about women being allies to men, especially around the home. I hear lots of stories about people saying, you know, I try and go and pick up my kids from school, but I feel really excluded because nobody talks to me and, and those kind of things. So I think there's a real message here about, you know, women in particular sort of being more allies in the home. And as you said earlier, Felix, about relinquishing control a bit and actually just saying, it's fine, you deal with this. And actually, I'm not going to sort of micromanage what's going on here. I'll leave you to, to have a responsibility. I really hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. I want to take a moment to tell you a little bit more about our mission at Encompass Equality. We're passionate about enabling the retention and progression of women in the workplace and sharing our knowledge to help support and inspire others. This podcast forms just a small part of what we do. So if you're struggling to retain senior women, or if you're not sure whether the initiatives you have are working, please do get in touch with us at encompassequality.com. We have a depth of knowledge and research that underpins all the work we do supporting our clients. I'd love to move on now. It's been really interesting hearing about your experience in the past. I'd love to move on to the future for you guys, because I know you've now set up a new business called Within. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And you know, what was your reason for setting it up? Um, yeah. So, I mean, the story of Within started a couple of years ago when we were still at C-Space and emerging from the pandemic, like many organizations, um, we were suffering from a variety of things. People were feeling 
uh, a bit disenfranchised and disconnected from one another as we moved to hybrid working. We saw increased attrition and quite a lot of burnout across our organization. We tried all sorts of things to, to remedy this from mental health days through to bringing in mental health apps and speakers about resilience. And, and they, they did have an impact, but they didn't really shift the needle. And we ended up bringing in a social enterprise who trained our people in, uh, in how to listen really well and, and how to speak authentically. And this, this triggered us an incredible sense of connection across people. And that's now the, the, the basis of our organization. We, we were so blown away by the impact of that program on people's well-being and on our organizational culture that we thought we should do that full time. So we took the plunge and, and we set up within. And that's now our focus going into organizations and um, speaking to them about how they can build more connected cultures and, and training their people to, to better connect with one another. That's so interesting. I think, you know, culture is such a big word, isn't it? We, we're finding that with some of our new research that's coming out. People talk about the culture of the organisation and how it's not supporting them. And I think it's such a massive thing to change. And I think you're doing such a great job about kind of trying to really hone in on, you know, what kind of culture do you want to create? And, you know, giving people that sort of the means to to make some changes as well. And I know you've both, Felix in particular, I now remember talking to you about this. You know, you've shared your own stories of, you know, therapy and mental health challenges in the past. If you don't mind, it'd be wonderful if, we, if you perhaps could talk a little bit about that. Because again, I think it's so important to share those those stories. And um, I know you have done in the past openly. So if you're if you're you know willing and open to, to doing that, it'd be great to hear your story around that. Yeah, for me, I've been in therapy for over eleven years now, um, seeing the same therapist all the all the time, and I think. I've just experienced that. It's just a revelation of, and I'm just wondering why, why, why does not everyone go to therapy? Um, because it's such a, such a powerful tool to reflect, to kind of recover, to, to process stuff that happens all the time. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the therapeutic intervention. And I think at the time it was interesting. My, my boss at the time had been in therapy and he suggested that, you know, that he's got a really good therapist and, and why, why wouldn't I check him out? So I, I wasn't necessarily always in a crisis moment when I needed them. Um, it was also just saying, Hey, I, this really, improves your home life. This really improves how you are in the world. It's a really, uh, it's, it's a luxury, of course, it's expensive. And it, I went privately. I just have never looked back and I've been very open about that at C-Space for the same reason, especially men often feel it's a weakness to go to therapy. It's a taboo. I don't know my emotions. I don't know what to talk about. So I'm trying to kind of destigmatize the therapeutic environment. And, you know, if you call it coaching or if you call it performance coaching, everyone would go. So maybe it's just a labeling question, um, but I'm, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of benefit from, from it. And I know other people have gone to therapists because of the visibility that I've created. It's so interesting. And I've actually just been going through my own, some coaching with a coach and it was sort of purpose coaching, but actually it's felt so like therapy. And actually, you know, I was in tears in, in, you know, one of the early sessions with her and I was like, I had no idea that it was going to go that deep and kind of back to my childhood and lots of things like that. And I was like, whoa, this is a bit scary, but actually how valuable it was and still is. I'm still, you know, having conversations with her. I think sometimes people are thinking, well, I, oh, I'd love some of that, but where do I find it? You know, how do I, how do I find a therapist? You know, what's the sort of any recommendations that either of you have? The first thing to say here is that a lot of people find a therapist and then they don't like them and then they never try again. So it's a bit like dating. You probably need to speak to three, four people to understand who fits you and and the, the strength of relationship between you and the therapist is a direct correlation to the quality of the therapy itself. So so take a bit of time. I don't want to say shop around, but but look for different types. I often ask for uh, personal recommendations. So if you know someone who's in therapy, ask them whether they can recommend someone. 
Um, there's online resources as well where you can search. But I, I would research a bit the different types of therapy that exist, uh, write to a few, meet a couple, and then and then take it from there. And I think it was interesting you were talking about the fact for men in particular, it's quite taboo. It can be seen as being quite taboo and quite sort of you know, a weakness to ask for help and, and to sort of seek that kind of support. And I think there's so much now I'm reading about, and I'm really interested in about kind of what does it mean to be a man and what, and about masculinity and in the workplace in particular, because I'm talking, as you know, a lot about gender equality. And the feedback I'm getting is in you know, a lot of men saying, I'm really scared about my future. What does it mean for me? And these kind of things. I think I'd love to know your, your experiences within organizations you're currently working with, you know, about how, how you think organizations are dealing with that and are they doing enough do you think it's a really challenging question joy i mean i think i have to admit i i feel that in my career showing empathy and kindness has um i've probably been disproportionately rewarded for that compared to perhaps women as a man because i do think the tides are turning and and people are looking to leaders to be kinder more empathetic more vulnerable so i i think for the men in certain organizations who lean into those perhaps traits that perhaps might have in the past been seen as more traditionally feminine, I think they can be rewarded for it. That said, I think it it can be really hard in more masculine environments, in more masculine corporate cultures. And and I'm sure I haven't worked in those cultures, but I I hear that it can be challenging. I I think the organizations that are getting it right are seeing it as a skill to be developed, not something that people just have. So you can be trained to build relationships in a more intentional way. You can be trained to exhibit empathy. Uh, You can be trained to become a better listener. You can incentivize people to act with kindness through your corporate values, through your incentives, through your performance management frameworks, through harder structures. So I think the organizations that are seeing it as a skill and uh, those organizations that are being intentional about investing time, money, resources, and creating spaces where people can talk safely and openly it might be team meetings, it might be listening circles, it might be leadership development programs, coaching. I think that's really important. I also think thinking about different identities, those organizations that are not just trying to do it through a one hit silver bullet solution, but um, men in organizations might need slightly different interventions and solutions to women, to black people, to LGBT plus folks. And I, and I think thinking about that intentionally makes a big difference as well. Absolutely. And I think acting with insight, which, as you know, is one of my in my spaces framework that I talk about for allyship is the A is for act with insight. And it's all about everybody has to take responsibility here. It's not nobody's going to train you. It's up to you to learn and educate yourself. And I know you both are, you know, great readers and, and do a lot of learning and seeing, you know, what you can do differently. And I think that would be a key key thing for me is actually just just start reflecting on your own privilege, as we've talked about, and, and reflecting on thinking about others and, and others who might not be as, as privileged as you. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I wondered if there's anything else that either of you wanted to add about your current business that you're that you're running. Anything that you want to share with listeners? Maybe just one idea that links to the DNI conversation and, and what we are doing. I think you know. So, so basically, the, the key methodology that we deploy is we we take groups of people and we teach them how to speak honestly and openly and how to listen very well to each other. And we have a very structured format to do that. And one principle we apply in this is called share the air, which is the idea that everyone in a group will have the same amount of time to talk and um, the same amount of time to be listened to and we time it with a phone. So you might get 10 minutes, Joy, and then we, we respond to you. Phil might get 10 minutes and then I'll get 10 minutes. So I think that's a really powerful mechanism to run these groups. And it's something that 
corporations could easily incorporate and say, you know, we always have someone like often the man, often the hippo who speaks the most. Could we have a more equitable way of, of meetings? Can we, can we have more airtime for those that normally don't do the speaking? And then immediately things will change. So that's maybe just an idea to steal from the program that we do. Brilliant. And I think it's so simple, isn't it? And actually, why don't we all do it? Anyway, that's something we, we talk about. Again, in that spaces framework, one is engaged in meetings. It's like, yeah, everybody have a certain amount of time at the beginning of each meeting, listen, and then people feel included. So yeah, great tip. Talking of tips, I'd love to finish on one top tip from you, from you both, for organizations who want to drive inclusion at work. Maybe, Felix, you've just done your tip. Maybe, Phil, you come in with your tip. I think too often I hear organizations putting inclusion at the door of HR. Um, and, and it's HR's job to fix inclusion and to fix mental health challenges in the business. I think my tip would be it starts with the leadership team. So avoid the platitudes, start with the leadership team, and it's really their responsibility to set this agenda, role model, and drive it through the organization in partnership with the people team. Thank you both so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. If you like what you've heard, don't forget you can download the free tools and frameworks from EncompassEquality.com to get started and take action today, wherever you are on your journey. It would also really make my day if you could spend a couple of minutes to rate and review the podcast for others. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode. Music